everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. So pleased to have you with us today. My name is Jake, and I am joined by my co-host, David Campbell, and our most recent addition to the show, Josh Garcia, who is our new, what term do we decide upon? You said producer? Producer slash mediator. <laughs> Facilitator of conversation. And um, yeah. We're stoked to be here. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope that the show is a help to you and a blessing to you and uh, that you are growing as a result of it. So Josh, I'm going to pass it over to you. Yeah. Yeah. So this week we're still sticking around the Beatitudes. Yep. Which, dang, this each verse is a sermon in and of itself. So we're going to go a few verses back. Last week we did uh, pure, pure in heart. That's right. Yes. Today we're doing verse number five. I'll just read it. It's blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And we'll kind of take it at, let's segment it first part of verse, second part of verse, and we'll kind of bring it all together. So what does it mean for the meek to be blessed? First, I just have to say that uh, David texted me like two hours ago. He said, topic today, question mark. And I texted him back, blessed are the meek. And he texted me back like five seconds later, my autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, well, uh, that'd be exciting. I got a good a good uh, laugh out of that driving because uh, I I I played it over CarPlay in oh, my car. The car read it to you. I don't know. I could be though. Yeah, I'm excited. David, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. We're moved and getting more, you know, sort of settled in just in time for a wave of invasion from the United Kingdom in the form of my daughter, son-in-law, and four young grandchildren. Wow, that's going to be amazing. Good thing you got a bigger place. It is. Yes. And now, that's are you before in... the rest of them all start to arrive. It's what, sorry? That's before the rest start to arrive. Oh. Ah, yes. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, it'll feel small pretty quick. Are you sitting in a different area than last week? There's I feel more like, going on in your Yeah, background. I feel like we've got a more com- complex background. I am about in the same place. It's not ideal because I'm still, uh, my... My books, my book background, which you like so much because it makes me look intelligent, uh, will <laughs> not appear for some time because um, I have to buy new bookshelves and put them together. And just before that, we have to decide whether we're going to change the flooring in that particular room. So for now, uh, I'm just in this room with doors in the background. Okay, so blessed are the meek. Okay, first of all, David, when you read the Beatitudes, do you say blessed or do you say blessed? I probably say that's an interesting question. My doctoral supervisor was a great, uh, you might call him an antiquarian. Uh, He was a purist in terms of the English language, and he always spelt blessed with a T on the end, B-L-E-S-T. So that would be blessed. Uh, but when he got up every morning, uh, before he read his Bible, he read um, a page of Shakespeare and a page of the Oxford English Dictionary. So that's where he was at. And uh, when he got to the text of my doctoral thesis, it was vicious. There wasn't much left. So blessed would be... I think I would say blessed probably because if you have the modern translation of the English past participle, which is ED, you tend to say blessed rather than blessed. 
Right. Yeah. But well, blessed definitely sounds better. Yeah. But I've been saying blessed. blessed. But I think I'm going to switch to blessed now. I don't think well, you know how it. Blessed, blessed. Pentecost was always add an extra syllable. Well, there you go. Everything. Even say blessed. I was going to say it'd be a blessed. That's the Pentecostal. Oh man, I came across a a Pentecostal preacher on Instagram the other day, and man, did it just take me back. Okay. Wow. It was lots of extra syllables. Lots of extra, lots of (laughs) at the end of his words. Oh man. So blessed are the meek. Indeed. Yes. Uh, for they will inherit the earth, but yeah. we're taking it piece by piece. Yeah. Um, okay. So blessed are the, I was excited to talk about this one. Um, I feel like the, the first part is, uh, certainly, you know, still can have a discussion around it, but is a bit more obvious than say something like pure in heart. Right. Um, but I think the second part of it as well, in terms of inheriting the earth can get us into some interesting discussion. Uh, even on the eschatological front, um, which could be interesting. So, uh, blessed are the meek. Um, Psalm 37 uh, is uh, a reference to that statement um, where David says in verse 11. 11, yeah. Uh, Well, let's start in verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek, will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Um, in fact, that's a theme all throughout Psalm 37 is the inheritance of the land going to here. The meek later on, I believe, refers to them as the righteous, um, those who hope in the Lord. And so the reason I bring that in is because I feel like that context maybe tells us what all is loaded into the term meek, uh, especially the phrase those who hope in the Lord. There's a lot of like, for instance, in verse eight, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. There's, there seems to be kind of an ethic here of trusting in God, even in the midst of uh, evil people prospering, uh, not being a vengeful person. Honestly, kind of like loving your enemies as Jesus goes on to espouse later on in the Sermon on the Mount um, seems to be almost a bit of a, uh, uh, expounding upon this particular beatitude. So those are kind of my initial thoughts uh, on it. David, what about you? Well, the Greek word here for meek, and Jesus uh, in, I think, chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel describes himself as meek. Um, so Jesus takes this word and uh, applies it to himself um, as well as using it here. Uh, so blessed are the meek means we follow in his footsteps. Our, the connotation of our English word meek is, um, you know, somebody that sits in a corner and, uh, really is afraid to say anything to anyone and, uh, never, you know, would never offend anyone or might even be fearful. And obviously that's, it's something that's lost in the translation. Uh, and of course, the English language changes as well, because we have some words that were accurately translated in the authorized version, the King James Bible, um, which don't make any sense now, but they did in 1611. Uh, and I don't know whether meek would be one of those words, because I'm not, ne- 
unlike my supervisor, Charles Cranfield, I'm not expert in Elizabethan English. I would, but the, the gist of it here is the meaning of the Greek word, and it essentially is power under control. That's how you could describe it. So it is somebody who has strength, but is willing to lay down their rights and their strength in order to promote the interest of the other person. And that's what meekness means. It doesn't mean people who are, you know, um, weak, let's say, for want of a better phrase, uh, or fearful. It means people who are strong, but who choose not to rule by force and power. And this is really important. And it's one of the qualifications of an elder when we get around to First Timothy and Titus. And, uh, and it's really, really important because those in leadership in the church, if you come to rule by force and power, uh, that's abusive leadership, and it will create all sorts of trouble. And, and a leader has to follow in the example of Jesus, who had strength, enormous strength, but he chose to use it in the interests of those he was serving, which is you and me. So his strength carried him to the death on the cross. Uh, but it did, doesn't mean that he was weak. And so somehow we have to pick up the meaning of that and figure out, you know, what does that look like in your life and in mine? And get away from the issue of personality types. Personally, I... This is a digression. I shouldn't, you can tell me to shut up, but I hate these personality tests, especially the simplistic ones. I detest them and refuse to take them. I think in any event, we have to get away from the, the characterization of this as uh, some kind of strong personality or a meek person is a different kind of personality. It's got nothing to do with that. The word applies to every single person, every type of personality, whether you're out there, upfront, aggressive, extrovert, introvert, whatever you are, male, female, the same word applies to all of us. As Christians, we do have strength that God gives us, but we have to use it under control, and the control relates to the benefit of those that are living around us, those that we're living with, those that we're serving. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the analogies that... Uh... Spurgeon uses for this is like a hammer and an anvil and meekness is being the anvil. So it's not that you lack in, in strength. Right. It's just that just because it's just that you, your meekness makes you harder than the hammer. Um, so no matter how many times the hammer may strike you, uh, the anvil does not strike back. Um, but it's hardness ultimately wins the day. Yeah. Um, so I think that's clear in terms of a meekness towards other people. And then in terms of meekness towards God, I suppose it would be a submissiveness to his word is, is where my mind goes um, in terms of uh, obedience. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, maybe, but certainly sometimes uh, there are things that we walk through that we don't understand or things that God requires that we may not understand at first, um, especially when they're hard. Um, but I think meekness is having an attitude of God's ways are higher than my ways right. and um, submitting to the Lord, 
when he asks us to do hard things because we know that those hard things are ultimately for our benefit. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, this this whole concept of like having, like you say power to do something and yet not doing it um, is in one way, like what you were saying, like how we're meek towards God. And like, yeah, we have the choice to then be in rebellion, but we don't choose not to be in rebellion. Mm-hmm. That's why there's, there's being blessed mm-hmm. in, in, in that attitude. And I guess I want to bring it a bit into a bit more of a practical, like, what does that practically look like to be meek in, like, we have the, we, we know the concept of it. Like, how does that apply, um, to the Christian walk? Well, I think we have opportunity to be meek all of the time because, um, if you're, if you're living in any kind of like communal context, right. then you're going to have a lot of opportunity to be offended. Um, and therefore to a lot of temptation to be, uh, retaliatory or vengeful or withholding forgiveness, bearing grudges, all those kinds of things. Um, and certainly if you're in any kind of like leadership position, then your flesh wants to use power in a, in a negative way. Um, and so those are all constant contact where our meekness has to come into play. Um, and as you say, God, there, there are often occasions when God, uh, walks us through hard things. And to me, those are occasions where meekness is, comes to the forefront of our... The choice we get to make. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say it's pretty well daily. Yeah. I would think. So it's it's less about, like like you said, it's not a personality. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the the posture of your heart um, at a given point in time. Do you, have, do you have more to say about that, David? Yeah, I just think that sometimes we... C- we can carry a little more strength than we realize. I remember, um, you know, when I was a young Christian leader, uh, having a, and I, I may have told this story before, Jake, so you have to forgive me, but uh, I had a, a confrontational situation with another guy, and um, we arranged to meet. Uh, and when uh, we sat down to meet, he said, oh, I've been in the toilet all morning. And I said, oh, if I'd known you were ill, I would have canceled the meeting. He said, no, it was nerves. I said, well, what what were you nervous about? He said, well, this meeting. And and realized that, you know, I knew it. and I, I said, well, I've been nervous about it too because you're such a strong personality. And he said, well, you are, you know, and we kind of looked at each other and laughed. <laughs> and I don't, all I remember is that we, we, even though we had differences, there were some theological differences that we're trying to work out. Um, that you know, it 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 broke the ice, broke the tension, and we were able to to walk it out fine. And but I learned a lesson that I I never have forgotten that um, you've got always to be thinking about the impact of your words and your actions on other people uh, sure. because. Some people are just like, you know, a runaway train. And sometimes it's a dysfunction, but sometimes people just don't realize. So thinking about this meekness, it's whatever strength I have. And some people have strength and force of personality. You know, some people have in- intimidate just because they're big physically, uh, or some people intimidate intellectually doesn't matter what it is uh we have to walk harnessing our power 
and realizing, you know, the important thing is to measure the impact of what we're saying and how we're saying it to the people around us. And the worst mm-hmm. thing, and again, going back to leadership, the worst thing about leadership is when, you know, you um, say, well, I think this is the way it should be done. And you're talking to maybe another person that you're doing a project with, or maybe you're talking to a team of leaders and, uh, and nobody says anything and you sort of go merrily on your way and think, well, that was great. Everybody agreed. No, actually, they <laughs> back and say, I, I don't agree with that, you know. Yeah. So you got to bend over backward and say, um, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to a group of people that you're, you're on a leadership team with or whether it's just, you know, you're talking to your wife about um, tomorrow's plans, you mm-hmm. know, or one of your kids. Uh, you've got to listen and be aware of uh, and and solicit you know how do you feel about that uh, you know I know I may come across forcefully but um, I, I apologize for that but um, what do you feel about it because it's fine if you disagree you know I mean it's just a lot of it, yeah, it yeah. sounds like common sense that it's the well, practical application of this word meat totally and I think if I could be a little like less practical for a second what undergirds all this to me is the word inherit. So blessed are the meek or blessed are the meek for they will inherit. Well, what, what does uh, an abusive uh, person do is they don't inherit anything. They take things. Yeah. So blessed are the meek for they will inherit. There's implicit in that is a trusting that God's timing, God's provision is ultimately what is going to win the day when we don't try to grab and grasp, but rather, uh, as the Psalm says in Psalm 37, hope in the Lord. And uh, I think maybe I'm wrong about this, David, in my thinking, but wh- where my mind goes when I read this verse is to the initial promise of God to Abraham about inheriting the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, if I'm not wrong, that's that's the Jewish background and context. To, that certainly seems to be how Jesus's audience would have heard this promise of inheriting right. the earth um, as going back to the promise to Abraham. Um, and what does God tell Abraham to do? Not to go into Canaan and, you know, start lopping off heads and yeah. making war. But God takes Abraham and his uh, his progeny on a long uh, period of trust and hoping right. in the Lord and trusting in God's timing when they will inherit. Now, that's not to say that we are completely passive in that process, because eventually there's going to come a Joshua who's going to go in and take the territory. So there, there is some some involvement there and some activity on behalf of the believer. Um, but it's trusting in God's good timing and going to the doors when he opens them, not beating them down. And that's probably a good way of understanding the difference. If you were to broaden our application here from leadership and just think general Christianity, how you are at work, how you are in your marriage or in your relationships with your friends, your girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, uh, is your, uh, is your propensity to be a taker right. or an inheritor? Do you want to to seize upon the good things that you see, or do you want to patiently walk towards uh, God's good plan for your life and inherit God's blessings yeah. for you? I, I like that uh, you referred back to the original promise, which is probably you're right. The 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 way that 
the Jewish Jewish audience would have properly interpreted it. it I think so. Yeah, is is the promised land, and I think what's even more interesting is even when the Joshua did come, it wasn't as if they broke down the walls to conquer it. They mm. they had power, they had strength. Right, that shows not. It was to, march and walk, mar exactly. march and shout, and that was their version of meekness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, and that's interesting. You know, um, oftentimes I think we would maybe think about faith and meekness as opposites to one another but actually faith when i am weak then i am strong right. yeah i think faith has uh an inherent meekness built into it because it is a trust it is a confident trust in the character and the capability of god right um to deliver so is it fair to look at that uh the promised land uh and and god's uh original promise to jewish people as kind of the the image that jesus is referring back to i want to hear what david thinks about that sure Oh no, definitely. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it, but it that it does make an interesting. Oh, well, there's two things. The one part is, you know, Jesus is saying that the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not obtained by force and power. That sometimes that other verse where he says, um, mm -hmm. "The violent take it by force," but now since the days of John the Baptist, the violent take it by force. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to think back decades ago that you know that was you know we were going to take the kingdom and um but actually jesus the violent are the people who opposed john the baptist and so uh since the days of john the baptist he's saying the conflict is launched and the violent men are coming against the kingdom of god which makes more sense because jesus taught says blessed are the peacemakers doesn't he right here uh -huh. in the attitude um, we're supposed to be peacemakers, not people of violence. Uh, and so, um, so in that theme, uh, it, the meek inherit the earth. The people that will inherit the kingdom, um, we're not supposed to be taking up arms to sub like it, Islam teaches to subdue all of our enemies before us and seize power. Um, we rule. My um, colleague, Professor Greg Beal, says says um jesus rules ironically um True. through his death on a cross and so we rule ironically we express our rule through servanthood and the laying down of our lives and that's how we enter and possess the eternal kingdom so it's total reversal of the way the world thinks which is you know by force and power and violent means we're going to seize uh, our inheritance. So Jesus is saying, no, it's the opposite. But the the other point in the idea of inheriting the earth is the way that Jesus takes the Old Testament promise of inheriting the land and translates it into inheriting the eternal kingdom. <laughs> and this is a really important point in understanding prophecy and eschatology. And I knew it was going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Called it. Well, it, it's a massive mistake that dispensationalists fall into that uh, there are two sets of promises, one of which is a physical land for the Jewish people, the other of which is an eternal kingdom for Christians. And that splits the covenant in two, which is what dispensationalism does, is one covenant for the Jews, one for which, which makes a mockery 
of the whole idea of the covenant of grace, which runs throughout the whole Bible. And it, and it, it, it does something really damaging because the, the Old and New Testament are a record of promise and fulfillment. And every single prophetic promise of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his people. And it isn't as if Jesus just fulfills some parts of the Old Testament, but other parts are fulfilled by the Jewish people, as if mm -hmm. Jesus was a kind of an add-on. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he was part of God's plan, but not all of God's plan. But God is, right. has got this other thing going on with the Jewish people. And, and, of course, then it makes mockery of what the New Testament teaches, especially when we come to Hebrews chapter 7 to 11, and he talks about God has done away with the first to establish the second, and so mm -hmm. on. And so here is a place where we see Jesus is not, is taking the Old Testament promise, which you quoted Jake, Psalm 37, of the land, and mm -hmm. going back to Abraham, and he's saying this is how you have to understand it, because he's saying it's fulfilled in me. The promise right. of the land is fulfilled in me. That means the land is redefined, not as the physical nation of Israel within whatever boundaries you know you conceive right. it, but as the eternal kingdom of God, which has been initiated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and will enter into its final fulfillment, obviously, at his return. Mm -hmm. And so if we understand this, what Jesus is saying correctly, he drives a truck. If Jesus were here today teaching in person, he'd be driving his truck through dispensationalism a very major way. I'm not so sure about that. I think you'd be a Trump prophet. <laughs> Dispy. Oh, my God. Rapture. <laughs> Believe in. Do, do you think that... Um, do you think that Jesus uses the term earth instead of land with intention? Like, is he, is he broadening the promise there to go from the, bo the, the boundaries of Israel to... Well, because the, the Hebrew word would be the same, Eretz. Okay, that's what I was wondering. It's an, expandable, it's an expandable word. Hebrew only has 10,000 words in its vocabulary. So sometimes one word, uh, yom, the word for day, is another example when we get into Genesis. But with Eretz... And it does apply with regard to the flood, you know, kol haaretz, um, the the whole earth. Um, uh, the word means can mean um, the land of Israel. It can mean it can mean in an, an undefined area. It mm -hmm. can mean a very large area. It can mean the whole of the earth, depending on context. So. Jesus is, is that the same in Greek? No, well, no, because Greek has a far more developed vocabulary than Hebrew does, um, and obviously so does English. So that's where um, Bible translators uh, try as best they can to line up similar English words with the words that are in Hebrew if they're translating the Old Testament. But, but sorry. In the New Testament, though, in Matthew's Gospel, mm -hmm. if he's writing that in Greek, I, I wonder if Matthew is. Oh, but you see, Jesus is is basically quoting or alluding to the Old Testament. Sure. So Jesus wasn't speaking Greek; he was speaking Aramaic. 
Uh, so when we look at a text like this, we have to realize, as you pointed out correctly at the beginning, that he is talking about the Eretz, the land. Uh, and, uh, and so what does that mean in the Old Testament? We have to go back to the Old Testament because that's what Jesus was talking about. Sure. And, yep. in my, and I think he's clearly defining, because if if I, I should have had my little electronic Bible here, it's a little bit less spiritual than a real Bible, but see, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's obviously mm -hmm. parallel with blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So mm -hmm. the earth, or the land, is equated with the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand right. the parallelism yes, yes. of what Jesus uh -huh. is saying? is when he's talking about earth here, or the Hebrew word Eretz, he's not talking about a piece of geography somewhere around Jerusalem in a radius of right. how many miles. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. All of the Beatitudes are about that. None of the, It would be ludicrous if Jesus said, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit... Um, Israel. Uh, a nice piece of real estate just yeah. outside of Jerusalem. Right. It's ludicrous. Right. But it is what dispensationalism teaches. Right. Because yep. dispensationalism teaches that Jesus is speaking to the Jews here. And these promises, according to dispensational teaching, anyone that's listening to this that believes in the rapture, you, you bought into something that's a lot deeper than what you thought. What dispensationalism teaches is that these words that Jesus is speaking do not apply to the church at all. Right. They only apply to the Jewish people, the Jew. and they'll be fulfilled in the uh, millennium, in the earthly millennial kingdom. <laughs> That's your two covenants again. So it's a mess. That's not what Jesus was talking about at all. He was talking about the eternal kingdom. Yes. Sorry, just to clarify, by talking about uh, using the word earth, all I'm meaning to say is uh, to think of that in the kingdom sense of new heavens and new earth. Um, and that's a great way to to put it, Jake. Right, right, right. Okay. That it's not it's it, it's not just pertaining to the land Correct. that they got. It's an expansion. Yeah. Right. But my, my question was, is there a difference in the word? And so David is saying, no, there's not a difference in the word. But if you were to, I guess, kind of read into the phrase uh, from a uh, a broader perspective, considering all of what the New Testament teaches right. and all of what Jesus teaches specifically, then then you would get to that that meaning of of kingdom. Yeah, that this isn't just for the Jewish audience at the time, but it's also for the church. Yeah, and and that's why I asked the question, right? Like, um, I often wonder about you know Gordon Fee talks about and how to read the Bible for all it's worth of the the two layers of reading the Gospels. So you've got the, the immediate context of Jesus teaching the people who are listening. But then you've got the context of Matthew uh, writing this down for the, church. for the church, specifically for whatever community he was writing to at the time, uh, which I understand uh, to be a primar primarily Jewish community. And so that was just the kind of the question that was rattling around in my brain is like, even in Matthew's recording of Jesus's teaching, was he using a uh, Greek word? Because he wrote this in Greek. Is that correct, David? He's translating Jesus as Aramaic and he's writing in Greek. And is he using a word that that communicates the fullness of the promise of the kingdom as opposed to just understanding it as the boundaries of Israel? Right. So that I was kind of thinking through that two-layer context Did he expand there. expand upon 
just a concept of the land. Correct. Right. Yeah. And and use a Greek word that means something broader than just geography. But that doesn't have to be the case to still arrive at ultimately the truth of the passage. So Right. Yeah. No, I mean I think the right way to interpret it is Jesus is taking he's clearly making a refer- reference here to the Old Testament, that whole right. Old Testament thread of the inheriting of the land. And he's saying it, saying, those who follow me will inherit the kingdom. So therefore, the land, the promise of the Old Testament, is not a physical piece of territory. It's the eternal kingdom. And that makes sense because the promise to Abraham in conjunction with inheriting the land was that his descendants would be from all nations. In Mm -hmm. you will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it's not specific to Israel, the promise to Abraham. And so why would the promise to Abraham ultimately, in its eschatological fulfillment, why would it be the physical nation or area of Israel or Palestine? Why would it be? Because God was promising something that would encompass every nation. There's one other eschatological tension here that I think is worth diving into, Uh, not between dispensationalism and the historic Christian perspective, but between, uh, I guess, two streams within what would be considered uh, orthodox, that of an amillennialist perspective and a post-millennialist perspective. Because somebody who leans more towards a post-millennial view, I think is going to read that latter portion of the Beatitude as inheriting the earth as a process that we are in now, uh, whereas somebody uh, who is more amillennial is going to read it as um, a now and not yet and kind of major on the not yet piece of it in terms of when we receive that inheritance being at the second coming of Christ. David, do you want to kind of parse through that a little bit? Because I could see that being, you know, two opposing views there that might seem minor, but I think practically speaking, they can uh, they can bear fruit in some pretty obvious ways um, in terms of the way a believer actually approaches life. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I I um I'm not sure. I, I haven't uh, read a post millennialist commenting on this particular verse, so I can't say for sure. But the gist of post millennialism is as you presented it, which is again it it's a kind of a twist on dispensational teaching in that the inheriting of the earth is taken more literally, um, but not referring to Israel, but referring to the entire physical uh, planet Earth. So that um, post, what postmillennialism teaches uh, is, is a kind of a, a poorly named term because postmillennialists don't actually believe in a literal millennium. But what they believe in is that the, I have to backtrack, millennialists, which means no millennium, that's a bad term as well, because <laughs> everybody believes in a millennium. It's just <laughs> how do you define it? And For our listeners, we, in, in case you're kind of getting lost at this point, a millennium is a term to refer to what the Apostle John writes about in Revelation chapter 20, when he talks about this thousand year period, and there's all kinds of... Uh, perspectives that Bible teachers and theologians take in regards to what that is referencing. Um, well, at least there's a couple of perspectives. So one of which is I've touched on literal. 
yeah, at that least three. Literal thousand year. That's dispensationalism. The, the temple will be restored. The priesthood will be restored, and all this will happen. Jesus will rule from an earthly throne in Jerusalem, and so on. That's that. That's that. The 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 people that reject that generally would hold that the word millennium is uh, like all numbers in Revelation is symbolic, but it does mean something concrete, which is you could have like a, a historic premillennial perspective that believes in a literal millennium, but not in the dispensationalist sense. Oh, you're you're uh, yes, but you're confusing people because you're interrupting me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to try to present it as clearly as I can. Um, there are uh, the the big distinction is between, between people who take the word millennium to refer symbolically to the present church age. So we all believe in a millennium, but those of us from the historic Christian position would see it as a reference to the church age, that being the age between the resurrection of Christ and his return. And uh, the logic there being that, biblically speaking, a thousand years is akin to is a really a long time. And right. and the rest of it pertains to, you know, I, I obviously I haven't got time to go into it in this broadcast, the, the exegetical or textual justification of that. That is mm -hmm. the, that's what makes the most sense. Um, so uh, there is no literal earthly millennium, thousand-year period, uh, but we are living in a spiritual millennium now. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what's called post-millennialism, they agree with that, but they say toward the end of that period of time, things are going to get really, really good. The gospel is going to go everywhere, and basically, um, in its extreme form, everybody on earth will be converted at the time of Christ's return. Mm -hmm. And one branch of that teaching even says the goal of Christians, therefore, is to take control of government and reestablish some kind of biblical law uh, and, and so on. And so uh, that's, uh, th that's but, but the historical Christian perspective uh, has been that we're living uh, in an age which is it's in between. Mm -hmm. um, the kingdom has entered but not fulfilled, and this is a time where the kingdom advances but at a cost. There is blessing and there is suffering. And mm -hmm. before the return of the Lord, the church will always endure persecution. So it and 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 it doesn't see the mandate of the church to take over over government. I personally believe history demonstrates whenever the church tries to do that, it stops being the church. Mm -hmm. And the church is at its most effective when it's countercultural. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a big issue today in in some circles. So mm -hmm. uh, but Jesus says no, we're supposed to be the meek, getting it back to, you right. know, the text, Jake, that you introduced at the beginning. Uh, what does that mean? when Christians approach politics and that sort of thing. Well, I believe as much as anybody does that we should advocate for right, godly um, policies in government, such as pro-life and so on. But we don't come by force and power because you can't force the gospel on other people. 
And right. if you try to force the gospel on other people, you'll just get a backlash. Yes. And so the church has to learn how to be a servant. We gain a hearing through earning respect in the community, you know, where our churches our are weakness. going there. We're serving the community practically. Right. We're doing everything we can. Right. We're serving people individually. We're not, you know, we're laying our life down the best best we know how. Then people start listening to us. If we come yeah. along like a bulldozer and say, well, you know, we're going to put this set of laws on you, a uh, bunch of jerks, so we're going to, if we get enough votes, we're going to impose it on you. That, that it just doesn't work. And the church, yeah, I believe it is, as you say, becomes a political institution, for sure. And I think a couple of helpful distinctions would be uh, one of the things that I've been reflecting upon with this verse is the way that we ultimately receive our inheritance is by first prioritizing that God receives His. Hmm. So, uh, to be meek and to be a kingdom-minded person is to live in such a way that seeks to win the soul to the Lord because the church is God's inheritance, his, his holy people. And so uh, working for people to come into the kingdom of God is working for God to receive his inheritance. And I'm probably putting that a bit crudely, but I think it works. And when we live that way, when, the, when that's our priority, um, then we will be those who inherit the coming of the kingdom right. when it comes in its fullness. I think that's one helpful way to think about it. The other helpful way to think about it for those of you who are trying to like scratching their head a bit, like, okay, well, what's the difference between uh, being leaven in dough and trying to influence a society towards godly ideals and, uh, and actually imposing biblical law on, on, on societies. What's the difference between those two things? Um, because what, and David, correct me if I'm misunderstanding you, but I think what you're saying is you value and think it's good for Christians to seek, you know, at any kind of position in society, whether that be in politics or opening a small business or what have you, to be salt and light. Um, but that's different from I'm going to get this, uh, I'm going to become the president of the United States because I'm going to impose mosaic social law right. on on the nation. Um, not that our government structure would allow for that to happen, but that that's not something that Christians ought to be seeking for. But that's different than seeking to uphold Christian biblical ethics um, and still allowing people to, you know, make certain choices right. and have certain freedoms that they they want to express, but within a uh, within certain parameters uh, of what's going to promote the well being of of everybody. Is that? That's probably not completely clear. David, is there anything you would say to kind of articulate that a bit further? No, I, I, I agree. And I, I think one practical thing that we can do uh, is preachers should keep their mouths shut when it comes to politics. And, no. you know, if we've got uh, somebody in our congregation, a friend of mine in the state of Indiana, for instance, um, Arlen Stutzman is running for Congress. He was uh, in the House of Representatives uh, and he's... Um, standing for election uh, or hoping to stand for election, I think, next year to go back in there. So I want to support guys like that, godly men, uh, but uh, l let him do that part of the work, you know, and I, I need to stay out of it. 
it's not my job as a Christian leader to get out there and endorse political parties or start talking politics in the pulpit. What do you uh, specifically I'll, mean by politics? Well, I'm, I mean partisan politics. And uh, let me put it this way. My message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and your message is too, Jake. Yes. So supposing somebody comes into church on a Sunday morning and they have a different political point of view uh, than I would have personally. If I allow my political point of view to come into play when I'm preaching, that person is not going to hear the gospel. Right. They will become offended and upset and, uh, you know, about, about the political point. That's what they'll hear. And they won't come back. What do you mean by your political? Because, like, make that concrete. Because, well, if I, if I don't I, think you're as clear about this as any, you tend to be. If, if, if I make any reference to um, candidates, elections, partisan politics, a certain political party, uh, encouraging people to, you know, support the, uh, you know, such party or whatever. Right. Um, so you do you mean you mean candidate and party? Yes, I, I'm, I've heard you. I've heard you comment on issues, issues, right? So we can comment on issues. Like I, I never had any. I mean, I would, when it came around to election time, I'd always say, "Please vote for a pro-life candidate." And right, but uh, to, to, to most people, that's that be, that's cool being partisan. <laughs> no, well, not really. Um, you well, you've got to take a risk, but please vote for a pro-life candidate. Doesn't and and then, you know, I used to say anyway. Um, it whatever party they belong to is secondary. But please yeah. vote for someone who is a pro-life candidate. And I think and, for this reason, this is why I don't say it quite like you. Like I, I actually don't. The way I would say it is not that pastors should keep their mouth shut about politics because, um, because I think that 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 phrase is far too generic in terms of like what that can apply to and mean. Um, I, I do think that that pastors should stay out of, Hey, vote for this person, vote for that person. Um, and that's different than, Hey, here's a biblical perspective on this issue. Uh, whether that issue be something that, um, is more historically along the lines of a left-leaning perspective or a right-leaning perspective. Yeah. But you see, here's now, the problem in saying that, the primary message, my goal is is for people to be conformed in, into the image of Christ. Right. And the only way that happens is not by teaching uh, a biblical perspective on an issue. The way that that happens is by presenting Christ to them. People are transformed by Christ. And so it's not a, it's not a uh, an easy out to say that churches need to preach the gospel because Christ in you is the hope of glory. And there is a difference between presenting Christ to somebody and saying, here's a proper historic Orthodox Christian perspective on this thing. We can and should do both, but primarily we need to preach the man Jesus because that's where people will be transformed. Right. Well, let me put it another way. We shouldn't be straying into economics because a lot of politics deals okay, so with- so you that. have economic things in view. Well, part, yeah, partly- right. Right. Um, and this is the only reason I, I press you, David, is because I want you to be specific. Yeah. Um, so you when, when we're in churches in the United States, 
they tend to be very conservative from a political point of view, including how that would play out in terms of economics, right? Right. What we would call capitalism, which people don't properly understand. Uh, if you haven't taken Economics 101, then you don't really understand what capitalism is. Uh, but that's another matter. Um, and so then that's okay. That's that. But meanwhile, we go over to England and three quarters of the people are voting for the equivalent of the Democrats right. in the churches, right? And uh, and you think, oh, you know, and and you listen to them and you listen to, the, to them and they're saying, but, you know, what about justice for the poor? Yep. Uh, and in America, you would get that theme in black churches, which is yep. why most even black preachers would and and you know ally with the Democratic Party because yep. they would say there's more justice for the poor there. Now the person on the right side of the spectrum would say, well, hey, you know, uh, well they might quote Margaret Thatcher who said, you know, socialism is great at distributing money but not at generating, and it is great at you know spending everybody else's money till there's nothing left and things like that. And so you're not really helping the poor, right? And a person might agree with that, you know, because. Uh, in the in the confidential confines of this podcast, which is not me preaching, I would tend to be on the conservative side of the spectrum when it comes to economics. However, right. at the same time, I acknowledge that a lot of people on the conservative side of the spectrum um, who are Christians uh, have have difficulty with applying with with saying, "Well, how does that apply for care of the poor?" Because remember, the poor is an absolute constant theme in the Bible, both right. Old and New Testament. So you see, this is where preachers get in out of their debt. Exactly. And they don't know what they're talking about, and they make stupid statements, and then pe people turn off their real message, because, you know, the message of Christ, as you're saying. I'm talking about the gospel, I, but you've presented it really well. You're talking about Christ. That's what we want to convey to people. And we don't want people to walk in and hear the preacher running off at the mouth, oh, well, if these Democrats get in, you know, they're going to raise income tax and so on. Oh, then you right. just lost. Exactly. Right? Okay. You're so that's, that's a really important distinction, I think. Yeah. And I, I'm, I sense that it might be a generational difference. I could be wrong about that. That yeah, when we refer to politics. Yeah. When your generation says, don't be political, you might be primarily thinking economic. Right. I feel like when my generation hears political, they're thinking social and cultural Right. issues things like uh uh racism and things like abortion and things like gender ideology those kinds of things yeah oh, so well, that's why but, i don't like the broad brush yeah but to, to correct you if i dare uh you being the bishop of los angeles um <laughs> uh, the fact is that issues a lot of those social issues including racism and abortion were absolutely central to the baby boomer generation I mean, I think I think the transgender sexuality; right. those sub issues are more recent. Yes, uh, sorry, I don't. I don't mean that they're new issues. I just maybe think that like the word lumped together. In yeah, the word political maybe has different like immediate connotations. I don't, I could be completely wrong about that, but it just seems like when you say that, it doesn't totally it doesn't speak the most clearly to how you actually practically approach right. talking about things. Well, so I, I just, just wanted to yeah, give you the opportunity to be clear. I think what we need to do is we need to be filtering everything we're saying. You know how James says, 
not many of you should be teachers. And if you're teachers, yeah. you're hold to a higher standard. Um, mm -hmm. We need to be filtering, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's from, you know, the pulpit or whatever. We need to be always running it through the filter. It, is this magnifying Christ? Is this making Christ appeal to people? Is it, am I making Jesus look good? Am I keeping the main thing the main thing? Those type of things we need to be measuring all the time. It's not that, you know, if you're sitting chewing the fat with your, your buddy in a, the coffee shop and you both agree politically, you can have a right. chat about, you know, the way you see things. But you're when you start representing Christ publicly, that's a different matter. And I think there are some preachers in the United States in particular, but there's a few in Canada too, I have to admit, that have really gone overboard in a bad, bad way in sure. terms of endorsing right-wing conservative political causes. Well, it's and certainly I, a dangerous game because those people are not beholden to your biblical views. Yeah. And so- And it, ba you, you, it backfires. It just backfires. Exactly. And then people won't listen to the, the rest of us. Yeah. And, you know, we might yeah. privately even agree with some of those views. It's just allow a, a, a political Christian call into politics to enunciate that don't allow the pulpit to be co-opted by a political agenda. Yes. That's my plea. Ab absolutely agree. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of that comes down to recovering uh, a view of where the power is. The, the power is in the gospel. And when the gospel is preached, Christ is present to transform lives. That is not the same as espousing a... Uh, a biblical value on a particular issue. Both are important, but I think both have to have their um, their right and proper context. Yeah. So, this has been a very interesting conversation. So, inheriting the earth. Yeah. <laughs> we started with uh, meekness and then we went to eschatology and now we're in politics. Uh, what a crazy ride it's been. Yeah. But uh, I think just to kind of bring it back to the text, um, it, and how our understanding and our connotation of meekness was, you know, kind of misguided into thinking it's powerless and, mm -hmm. you know, shy and personality, but really it's a matter of the posture of your heart. And it's about having strength, but not necessarily using it or wielding it uh, against other people, mm -hmm. even to seize yeah. at the, at the detriment to others. Yeah. And I, I think that all of these things will be a good guiding principle for us as Christians and how we, live on this earth how it is that we conduct ourselves in different arenas even in politics so thank you so much for all that insight you guys brought on to a singular verse it's <laughs> so amazing always a pleasure yeah well um i'll give you final thoughts unless yeah no yeah. thanks everyone for listening to good theology and uh hope you will join us again next week god bless you david <laughs>